welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the Madden America podcast. This week, Madden America editor Emily Shearer Cutler presents the first in a series of interviews that examine the many important issues around forced treatment and cognitive liberty. The series will examine philosophical, theological and sociological perspectives on coercive treatment. In this first part, Emily interviews two well-known and very respected academics and activists, Bonnie Burstow and Nick Walker. This is a wide-ranging and fascinating discussion on some important and controversial issues. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. This week, I am excited to introduce not just one, but two activists and academics who have dedicated much of their lives to fighting for the human rights and civil liberties of those labeled mentally ill, Bonnie Burstow and Nick Walker. Bonnie Burstow is a faculty member at the University of Toronto and an anti-psychiatry activist. Last year, Dr. Burstow launched the world's first anti-psychiatry scholarship at the University of Toronto's Ontario Institute of Education. She has written numerous books, papers, and articles, including blogs for Madden America, on the coercive nature of the institution of psychiatry. Nick Walker is recognized as one of the leading thinkers in the emergent field of neurodiversity. He is a faculty member at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and a co-founder and editor at Autonomous Press, an independent publishing house that prints manuscripts by neurodivergent and mad people. I'd like to start out by asking you both to introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about your work. Bonnie, could you tell us a little bit about what led you to become an anti-psychiatry activist and the work you do now? That's a tall order. Uh, Let me say that, like lots of people, I was, you know, uh, I have... uh, I had a dual hat. I'm a human being in the world, and I could not help but see all the horror that psychiatry was causing for human beings that I came across and around me. I, I was also you know, a feminist therapist, and so you put those two together, and being anti-psychiatry was a no-brainer for me. Uh, the, uh, the, I also felt, as I delved into it more, I had to be a lot more of an activist because this was not simply a scholarly pursuit and it was not simply a clinical pursuit. It was a human rights issue and it was an issue of, of a, a dreadful treatment of a huge percentage of our population and an ever-increasing percentage of our population. So very early in the 80s, I started uh, saying, okay, what do you do when there are oppressed people? You, you join with the oppressed group. And, and, and do things in common with them. So I started to get active as an activist. I joined the uh, Phoenix Rising's editorial collective and uh, worked on that for some years, uh, you know, until it no longer existed. Uh, and, and I became a more general activist, being active against electroshock, being active against psychiatric drugging, being active against, uh, against incarceration. And, and to me... There was no choice in that. This, I was looking at mammoth violations of human rights. I was looking at oppression against huge group of people who, who, whose responses were being invalidated. And I was looking at a, a something far more existential than that. I was looking at the refusal to allow people to be different. Yes, 
Absolutely. And can you tell me a little bit about anti-psychiatry and why you choose to identify as anti-psychiatry um, as opposed to just anti-electroshock or anti-forced treatment or um, psychiatric reform? I uh, very strongly choose to not simply identify, as you say, though I, I have been more active in the fight against electroshock than anything else, that wouldn't cut it for me. If we had, I would love to see the end of forced treatment. But ending forced treatment is hardly enough when all of the treatment damages, when all of it's done by a profession whose claims are fraudulent and, uh, and so made by people as if they're, they are authoritative when they are groundless and this backed up by the state, we have something that has to go. We have something that has no claim, uh, you know, no claim to credibility and that is, can only in the long run be a force for harm in our society, which is how I see psychiatry. Um, so, Nick, could you tell us about the neurodiversity paradigm and your work in this field? Uh, well, sure, yeah. Um, I had uh, a lot of commonality uh, with, with Bonnie. We hold a lot of, we hold a lot of common uh, views recognizing uh, that uh, – this really is about the uh, the right of human beings to be different from the majority, to be their own unique selves, and that there are gross human rights violations occurring uh, that start with this uh, uh, start with people being uh, pathologized for being different from the majority. Start with the uh, difference and difference in consciousness being pathologized and that being used as a justification for violation of rights. Uh, for me, it started just being born autistic and going through uh, all of the, uh, the special ed uh, stuff and, you know, schools for schools for disturbed youth and uh, right from early childhood having uh, in, uh, being in that system of this is this is what happens to you in childhood if you, your way of being is pathologized and so uh, growing up uh, from very early on the the people who uh, whose minds were different from the majority and who were pathologized for it uh, were were my people. That was that was the the niche I occupied and the people who I was with. And uh, you know what? Because uh, I'm old enough that autism wasn't as widely uh, readily recognized. Um, you know, I didn't get diagnosed as autistic. I accumulated, like many autistic people of my generation, uh, uh, a wide variety of misdiagnoses, um, all sorts of exciting psychiatric diagnoses, and so uh, I got to I got to be treated at, depending on what I'd been diagnosed as most recently. You know, I got to I got exposed to various treatments uh, and. Uh, ways of being looked at that uh, really gave me a lot of sense of what goes on for people, uh, people with pathologized minds of all kinds. About the early, the early 2000s, uh, probably about oh, 14 years ago now, I started um, 
getting heavily involved in the autistic community. And I had already, by that time, I didn't have language for it necessarily, but I had uh, already a very clear understanding, um, really from very young, that this was a human rights issue, that this whole this whole pathologizing of difference and um, all these these concepts like mental illness or calling autism and other uh, minority ways of thinking, uh, you know, mental illnesses or mental disorders. Um, that this is just this is uh, this is garbage. This is these are stories someone made up because they didn't like people being different. You know, there's. I could already see that before I started getting involved in broader communities um, or discovering that there were other people uh, who had come to the same conclusions, it had already become very clear to me um, that these uh, these concepts uh, like mental illness were just buzzwords and stories that people had had made up to justify suppressing difference. Uh, so I got involved in the autistic community, uh, like I said, oh, 14 years ago or so. And there, uh, you know, at that time there was already, uh, a big autistic rights movement, you know, starting to gain momentum. And I got involved in that very quickly, um, and got exposed to the term neurodiversity, which was coined in 1998, 1999, and that that term was an eye opener for me. That was that was a big uh, aha moment to uh, to have that term uh, to use. Um, and the implications of it were exciting. Yes, this is what I've thought that this this pathologizing of difference is um, really a, a civil rights issue and an, an anti-diversity thing. You know that this this uh, pathologizing of minority cognitive styles and uh, experiences is follows similar patterns to oppression based on things like race and gender and sexual orientation and that sense it's a diversity issue and so having this term neurodiversity was like yeah okay so i was an early adopter of the term and really helped to encourage its spread uh in the autistic community as this was happening also i was uh pursuing my own academic career um um a lot of it is in somatic psychology um and so I was in this position, um, you know, of being a somatic psychologist and eventually teaching. So that put me in a, in a position where I was really um, seeing how how this stuff was taught, how this uh, what I call a pathology paradigm is is taught. And I was looking to how do I counter this? Uh, in the broader culture, in academia, within the autistic community, where there's a lot of internalized oppression, where people have really internalized their own pathologizing, um, and how do I teach it in a broader culture? Um, 
so I started thinking of it in terms of a paradigm shift. And so my, my work on the subject really deals with the shift from the pathology paradigm to the neurodiversity paradigm. Great. Awesome. So both of you have spoken about the concept of cognitive liberty or freedom and integrity of the mind as a central part of your work. Could you each say a little bit about what that concept means to you? My, my sense is that we are, you know, we are all complex individual human beings. We have our own way of thinking, our own way of processing, we have our own context, and we have our own attempt to make meaning by, by both effective selection from the past of where we've been and projecting into the future of where we're trying to go. You can't standardize that. You can't, you can't uniformize that. And this is what we need to do as human beings. This is what it means to be a human being. And so the second we decide there's a right way of thinking and a wrong way of thinking, independently of how the person does actually think, independently of context and what the person is involved in and what the person is trying to do, we are severely limiting uh, who, they, who they are and can be. We are severely limiting all of humanity on who, it can, or who people are and can be. And then in, in addition to that, we not only push people in that direction, we force people in that direction by locking them up, by forcing drugs on them, etc. We are doing an enormous disservice to existence as well as to the individual. Amen to that. I completely agree with this. And uh, cognitive liberty, um, as I've heard it originally articulated, um, uh, boils down to uh, uh, two principles of liberty that um, I think originate with Timothy Leary, actually, uh, <laughs> which is uh, these two these two principles are simply that. Uh, People should every every human being uh, should have the freedom to alter their consciousness in any way they want to do whatever they want with their own consciousness, and to not have their consciousness altered for them against their will. And everything else sort of grows from that from that idea because you know, all of these mechanisms of control of forcing, trying to force people into a particular mode of experience and development are about the policing, the forces, forced coercive policing of other people's consciousness. For me, again, my background, as I said, um, is very much in uh, somatics, uh, which is uh, somatic psychology, which is uh, psychology without the um, without mind-body dualism. So this understanding that we are not uh, we're not minds, you know, we're not we're not abstract minds um, riding around in bodies as if our bodies were cars. We are bodies that think. We are fully embodied beings. Uh, cognition is an embodied process. How we move and don't move, how we carry ourselves, um, reflects our psyche and shapes our psyche. And there's not a clear dividing line. The psyche is uh, somatically 
organized, somatically organized, organized, um, expressed and created through our embodiment. So because of that, you know, and so I, and I see that very clearly in neurodivergent communities, in the various uh, uh, people who are labeled as, um, you know, developmentally disabled or disordered as with autistic people or, you know, the people who are labeled mentally ill. There are the different uh, styles of cognition come with different styles of embodiment. And so uh, for me, coming from that background and being also an Aikido teacher, you know, and a teacher of movement, I've become very concerned with the policing of bodies um, and how it relates to the policing of minds, the locking up and restraint of bodies that people are pathologized um, for how they think and for how they move and embody themselves in the world. And so to me, a lot of the, the focus for that, uh, you know, civil rights uh, for me has been on cognitive liberty. I totally agree with you. And I totally agree that, you know, with your references at the same time, I would go back to the existentialists. If, you know, once we turn people into things, which is what is happening when we have a standard that people are supposed to go by rather than them existing uh, uh, for themselves and becoming who they are, if instead we are projecting what they're supposed to be, we are turning themselves, turning them into things to be controlled, and that is the end of not only cognitive liberty, but human existence, but, but the fundamental freedom of the human being as we know it. The freedom of the human being is the onslaught, is the person who exists for themselves, not the person we turn them into. Absolutely. And I know both of your work intersects with the disability rights movement as well, um, or disability justice, as well as I believe some of your work, Nick, might have touched on fat positivity or the fat acceptance movement. Can you speak to a little bit how that intersects with cognitive liberty? Yeah, it's, um, it's very closely entwined, um, the history of impositions on cognitive liberty, this, this pathologizing of difference, is intimately tied in with ableism. This, the core of the disability rights movement is the social model of disability and the shift from the medical model to the social model. So the medical model of disability, or in Britain, I believe they call it the individual model of disability, pathologizes disability as um, something that occurs uh, inside a person that it's a, it's a flaw or defect, this person. So they use this person-first language. This person has a disability, the way we say this person has a disease, um, and it makes them you know, defective or inferior in some way. And even, even if one is intending to uh, respect uh, disabled people, uh, there's something intrinsically victim blaming about saying about saying you have a disability this is you you're the problem the problem is in you and the the disability rights movement the cornerstone of it is the shift to the social model of disability and the social model of disability you don't have a disability you are disabled it is something that is done to you disability is an experience that happens 
from the intersection of who a person is, what their embodiment and uh, functionality and humanity is like, uh, the intersection of that with a society that doesn't accommodate them well. That is uh, very much part of this neurodiversity paradigm, too, that the pathology paradigm is, is very much entwined with the medical model. There's something wrong with you. You have a mental illness. You have autism. Um, in the neurodiversity paradigm, we say, no, you are autistic. You are neurodivergent in some way. You know, you are you are who you are with your own unique divergences from from accepted cultural norms. And you may be disabled um, to the extent that society refuses to accommodate your way of being. If I might, if I might come in here, because I have strong agreements with uh, with uh, with Nick, but I also have differences in in how I conceptualize this. Mm-hmm. I see the uh, the medical model of disability as woefully inadequate. Mm-hmm. I also see the social model of disability as inadequate. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what I've seen is uh, the social model is actually in many ways, uh, gotten in the way of anti-psychiatry because we're not allowed to say that we, that electroshock brain damages people and said that that has to be ableist. So I, I'm also seeing that the social model leaves out what happens transnationally, that, is, that, that in fact things are happening to people because wars are being perpetuated and started by, by, by what happens in the global south, and then they play out in the global north, and then people end up with all sorts of problems, and that gets disappeared. concept of, uh, of the social model just doesn't captivate to that, and rather rules it out. And I think similarly, when we talk about psychiatry, uh, people can, what gets left out of this conversation, if we stick with the social model of disability, is the psychiatrists impose damage on people's brains. And so we can't totally leave out the middle because they do that, and that does cause problems for people, enormous problems. And so we have, a, we have I think we have a model, we have to have models that negate the worst aspects of the medical model, but don't totally throw out the medical model, uh, throw out the medical model of mental illness for sure, but don't throw out medicine. And that, and that uh, go beyond the social model to really look at how power plays out, how capitalism plays out, how all sorts of things play out in ways that uh, don't simply leave people differently abled, but leave people with problems they never had before. Yes, I agree with this, and um, and yeah, the social model is is also limited and uh, lacks sufficient complexity. Uh, I would boil down the paradigms this way in terms of the paradigm shift that I that I am attempting to foster in the culture. Uh, the pathology paradigm essentially boils down to this assumption that there is one right way to be. There's a right way a limited narrow range of correct uh, ways to think and be embodied and anything outside of that is some sort of pathology and some sort of illness or disorder and that is uh 
really a, a paradigm rooted in capitalism and in this idea that people have a correct function. The idea that people are supposed to be cogs in particular sets of machinery. The neurodiversity paradigm says there is no one right way for people to function. We have our unique individuality for, uh, for any human being uh, or society to have the arrogance to say, this is the right way for people to function, you know, as makes this arrogant assumption that we know the the true purpose of human life, which I don't think there's any real consensus on among philosophers or theologians or, you know, everyone functions in their own unique way. And so the neurodiversity paradigm embraces that, you know, a particular way that the oppressors and abusers uh, frame things. And so, you know, anti-psychiatry is to be concerned with how do we counter this? And this is the same thing in the neurodiversity movement or, originates in the autistic community. And there, uh, a key bit of language is um, where autistic people are uh, described as uh, high functioning or low functioning within the pathology paradigm. So, there's this assumption, again, that there's one right way to function and that professionals and, uh, you know, the whole uh, uh, professional medical establishment has has the, the a right and a mandate to force people to function in a particular way. And autistic people are ranked their worthiness to live and to have autonomy and to have their humanity respected is ranked based on how closely they function compared to neurotypicals, people, you know, the cognitive majority. So there's this, this standard of like, this is normal and this is, and it's the right way to be. And you are higher if you're closer to passing for that and lower if you're further from passing for that. So that's um, that's really where we, you know, a lot of the the language and uh, work of the neurodiversity paradigm comes from. Uh, how do we challenge that in particular? Absolutely, and I want to thank you both for this discussion because I find that in my work, um, I do struggle at times with the tension between acknowledging and respecting and validating the damage that has been done by psychiatry, by psychiatric drugs, or by ECT, um, but also trying to avoid saying that any sort of disability or any sort of physical or mental way of being is inherently negative. And I think that's kind of the ethical debate that I have internally a lot of times. So thank you for both of your perspectives. I do want to get back to the topic of cognitive liberty. And I know that much of your work revolves around speaking out against the various barriers that restrict our cognitive liberty and our ability to live authentically as ourselves. Um, both of you have written extensively on the ways these freedoms are violated, whether through outright physical force or through more subtle forms of coercion. So, Bonnie, could you speak to some of the ways that psychiatry restricts our freedom of mind? You know, there are so many ways and so many levels, and almost nothing psychiatry doesn't, does is not part of restricting our cognitive liberty, people's cognitive liberty. So, on the most overt level... You don't like how people act. You 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 lock them up. But then it can so so. There's the blatant force. There's the coercive treatment where people are not given a choice. 
But those are only the most blatant forms of coercion and the most blatant forms of denial of liberty. Uh, all of psychiatry is predicated on, on some level or other, with the possible exception of people doing psychoanalysis. And even then, you can certainly see judgments of what's normal and what isn't normal. All of it's predicated on a denial of, of, of liberty. So all of the treatments, whether coerced or not, are denying people liberty, and people are talked into taking them, letting people think that they won't be okay as a human being if they don't take these treatments, even if you don't technically coerce them, is coercion, and it is also a denial of their freedom to think and, and feel. Uh, you know, it's not an accident that one of the first major classes of psychiatric drugs, the neuroleptics, was given a name meaning seize the nerve. So all of the treatments uh, are an infringement on, on liberty. But then so is how, you know, so is coercive stuff, the behavioral treatments. Yes, of course they are. It's rewards and punishments. It's treating people like a cause and effect mechanism where what they want to do is irrelevant. And what their context is and how they understand things is irrelevant. That they're this black box that we can that we can input different causes to. Uh, so I don't like any of the stuff very much because it all it all denies freedom and it all restricts what people can be and want to be. So uh, right from the least, which is the behavioral, which to me is nonetheless very denial, very much denying human liberty and cognitive freedom, to the to the, the maximal which is putting people in restraints and locking people in institutions and having forced treatment upon this, all of this is a denial of liberty and all of it works against cognitive freedom. Absolutely. Um, and Nick, I know you have spoken about specifically the behavioral treatment of applied mm -hmm. behavior analysis. So could you tell yep. us more about that? Absolutely. I totally agree with uh, everything Bonnie said. Um, and, uh, Coming out of the autistic community, um, we encounter a different and strongly overlapping range of uh, abuses uh, inflicted in the name of in the name of so-called treatment. So the uh, behaviorism is the big one for us. It's it's enormous that this is this is really the become for me the major focus of activism. This is I would say for the whole autistic community. The central focus of activism now is anti-behaviorist, um, because for us, that's where the most extreme abuse happens. And uh, the reason is, for some other, you know, for some diagnosis of so-called mental illness, or people who are diagnosed as bipolar, or schizophrenic, um, such, you know, they... Um, there's particular, like, okay, you've got this diagnosis, and then there's these particular go-to treatments of medication. And uh, uh, For autistic people, these days, autistic people are very frequently diagnosed in early childhood. What happens is uh, children diagnosed in early childhood are subjected to horrific behaviorist abuse, um, uh, this thing called ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, which is inflicted on them at full time. Like that's, that's actually what's recommended by the government, by insurance companies, by the government, by uh, the big 
anti-autism organizations like Autism Speaks and Autism Society of America, um, the whole autism industrial complex um, mm-hmm. that overlaps psychiatry but is its own entity pushes behaviorism and it's you know this coercive reward punishment thing but it's inflicted on small children as young as two years old and what's recommended is 40 hours a week children aren't they're not allowed to play they're not allowed to have any time to be creative or explore or do anything it's full-time behaviorism designed to teach them that their bodies are not theirs and that they're only of value to the extent that they can imitate a neurotypical embodiment. There's an entire generation, uh, multiple, two generations at this point, and another one being produced right now, of autistic people suffering lifelong severe post-traumatic stress from being subjected to this in childhood and vulnerable to abuse throughout their lives um, vulnerable to all sorts of sexual abuse and exploitation, and um, in in their lives uh, because they've been taught from very early childhood that their bodies aren't theirs and that they can't say no. What uh, you know, when I look at what happens to children labeled autistic and what they do to children labeled autistic, I would have to say this constitutes mammoth child abuse. Oh, I agree. I agree. I think it does. I think it, yeah. I mean, it's a huge scale, massive child abuse with lifelong consequences for entire generations, you know, for the majority of people recognized as autistic in childhood. And uh, yeah, it's this, it's this enormous, it's this enormous industry. It's enormous, very corrupt industry. And the growth of, and the growth of an industry. I mean, the fact that yeah. there are benefits from this. I mean, if you look at uh, the expansion of what is counting as autistic, you can also see an industry with something to gain. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a good thing that the full scope of autism is being recognized, that it's people who were, you know, it's a good thing that um, people are being recognized as autistic who weren't or who did, wouldn't have been a couple of generations ago, simply because um, it helps, it would, being recognized as autistic would help them find autistic community and such. But they do exactly, you know, what's done once they're recognized as autistic is <laughs> the worst possible thing. And it is heavily pushed. It is a huge industry with something to gain, and it, it maintains itself by stigmatizing autistic people more and more heavily by creating this state of this sense of emergency and panic in uh, parents of autistic children saying your child will never be okay without all of this ABA. And they do the exact same thing to parents of people they label schizophrenic, etc. And they they turn the parents into the eyes and ears controlling these children. It's a horror, which parents do it thinking this is what they're supposed to do and this is good for their child. Yes. And the whole thing is a, it's horrendously big, it is growing, and it, as I said, it all constitutes abuse. It and does. And it's monstrous. It's monstrous. It robs, I mean, I'm also thinking as a parent, you know, I mean, as, uh, as, as 
you know, coming to the coming, just looking at this as a, a parent, you know, it's such a pleasure to be able to watch my child develop and grow and play with her and watch how she plays and creates. And the idea that there's a whole generation of parents of autistic kids being uh, multiple generations now being terrified into and pressured into becoming police and institution guards in their own homes for their children, having to treat their children as, as psychiatric patients or behaviorist test subjects instead of as children, they're robbed of the experience of happy parenthood. And then, the, I mean, one of the greatest opposition to autistic cognitive liberty comes from parents of autistic children. Of course. And because these parents have been brainwashed, fed this this societal lie about how their children are in a state of emergency and how their children are broken, and they believe it. And so there's this whole martyr parent thing where parents... Parents of autistic kids get together and talk about how hard it is to have autistic kids and what a terrible burden we are, which is terrifying. You know, I mean, we we you know we we know we know from the history of the Third Reich what happens when you start talking about an entire class of people as a burden. But the burden is not autistic children or autistic pe- people, autistic human beings. The burden is. That it is, yeah, it's imposs- an impossible task to to parent if society has taught you that what you have to do is pay for and supervise a full-time behaviorist treatment instead of just getting to parent. You know, as we're both talking, the, I, the more convinced I get that, with, that while we have different emphases because the contexts are different, the common cause of anti-psychiatry movement and the reverse movement is huge. I agree. I completely Absolutely. Agree. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, think I agree. And I want to see more, more of it happen. I want to see more, more alliance and common cause made there. I agree. Um, and I did just want to ask, a lot of our readers are familiar with some of the more traditional psychiatric treatments, drugs, ECT, et cetera, but not with ABA. Nick, could you just describe a little bit, maybe some examples of what exactly it is so that people can have a better understanding? So it's a very intensive reward and coercive reward and punishment system where a child is... Um, Basically, working with an ABA, I, uh, an ABA practitioner. I hate calling them ABA therapists because it's not <laughs> therapy. They call it therapy, but therapy therapy means treatment or or healing or cure. And what what is actually being what's being healed? <laughs> Nothing's being healed. Damage is being done. So I I would not agree that it's a treatment or therapy. It's just uh, abuse. It's just an abusive practice. But ABA practitioners, uh, the child is with ABA practitioners for an extended period of time. And then um, uh, often parents are expected to parent, uh, instead of parenting, to just keep doing this ABA with their children. And it's just the system where the, the ABA practitioners pick specific goals for the child. And they're all goals of normalization, of forced normalization of bodies, uh, 
how you move. You will sit this way. You will speak this way. You will make eye contact this way. Um, uh, in other words, you will you will do your best to imitate a non-autistic person, uh, regardless of your own needs. Uh, and it's this te- incredibly tedious rote learning where everything is policed, everything about the, how the child carries themselves and conducts themselves, um, every action and movement especially is, is policed. Uh, the original ABA was very oriented towards abusive, uh, overtly abusive punishments, which they call aversives because of course they have to have these fancy words that hide what they're doing. Um, and so they're, they're, the early, the early ABA was the focus is electric shock and beatings. And then, uh, a lot of people started balking at that for obvious reasons. Um, and so it's been modified over time by in a lot of places, a lot of practitioners modify it where the the rewards are obvious and the punishments, um, the so-called aversives are much more subtle. They try to pretend they don't do them. So they're trying to pretend this isn't coercive, but the child is forced to sit there. And what they tell you instead of like, hit your child, hit your child if they do this, you know, hit your child if they don't comply, it's, you know, hold what they love hostage. If the child is interested, it has this particular thing they're passionately interested in, don't let them do it unless they've complied. You know, so there's this more subtle, more subtle, insidious, coercive element of, holding the child's freedom hostage, holding, you know, I mean, children crave approval and love and freedom to play. And all of that is just held hostage. And they pretend that that's not coercive. And they're like, we do the new nice ABA with no aversives. Uh, but from the perspective of a, a child where this is their whole life and we're just being able to be a child and be loved and approved of is held hostage. Um, and contingent on this uh, very difficult and agonizing performance they have to do 24-7. You know, it's, um, I mean, it's a monstrous and absurd to pretend that it's its anything but coercive. You understand, it's crucial to understand also these are, for autistic people especially, I mean, what is autism? It's this, um, you know, it's a specific neurological style that uh, involves a very intense uh, sensory experience for autistic people uh, lifelong and especially in childhood um, a lot of how they move and what they do and how they choose to spend their time just you know in terms of like limiting eye contact and ways particular distinctively autistic ways of moving their bodies and such it's all about natural style natural methods uh, of instinctive self-regulation, how they re- regulate their own sensory and cognitive experience so that they can be okay and function well. Like this is how they're supposed to do it. This is, this is, there's a natural developmental trajectory for autistic people that involves very distinctive kinds of movement and self-regulation uh, and limiting of, of overstimulus and autistic children, I find, are just geniuses at doing that naturally. Mm-hmm. But that's interfered with, and it's horrifically traumatizing for them. So they're really being 
basically they have all these natural strategies to be okay and self-regulate and prevent themselves from being traumatized by an overstimulating world. And they're being coerced into suppressing all of those strategies um, that enable them to function in a healthy way as healthy autistic people. Absolutely. And Bonnie, I'm sure you see parallels um, in psychiatry. And I was wondering if you could speak to um, some of the ways that either other behavior therapies or other types of psychiatric treatments kind of are parallel to what ABA is doing. Well, you know, behavior behavior therapies have always existed, Mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to so-called mental illnesses. And uh, they have been more pioneered by psychologists than by psychiatrists. But they have always existed, and it's it's the same thing. There is a system of rewards and punishments where people are pushed into acting in different ways than what feels natural to them, and in mechanical, uncompromising ways. And yes, uh, we see exactly the same pattern: that the punishments are more subtle. They're like withholding of attention, withholding. And, you know, even with people trying to, who are, don't try to be behaviorists, who are trying to be, you know, a humanistic therapist, you know, the, the, the client says something the therapist likes, and the therapist smiles at them. People hunger for smiles, and if they only get smiled at when the client says something that agrees with them, there is a subtle form of coercion going on that, that probably the therapist would be very surprised exists, but very much exists. And you only get away from that when you start recognizing and appreciating and valuing difference so you don't fall into that so easily. Absolutely. And I love that you both value difference. And one of my favorite aspects of your work is how intersectional it is. Um, Bonnie, I know that in addition to being in a leading being a leading anti-psychiatry activist, you're also a prolific feminist writer. Um, so how do these two areas intersect for you? In a way... Psychiatry is an equal opportunity oppressor, so it's quite willing to oppress everyone. Mm -hmm. And so that we see. But it doesn't oppress everyone equally, Mm -hmm. though eventually it oppresses everyone more and more, so it it starts looking that way. Obviously, women for the last few hundred years have been way more oppressed than men. That what looks not normal to uh, white, middle-class, heterosexual men is what a whole bunch of women do, as well as what a whole bunch of gay people do, as well as what a whole bunch of black people do, and this will play out. And the more oppressed people are, the more likely they're going to get more damage and treatments. Now, it's not a simple one-on-one. It it absolutely isn't a simple one-on-one. Women, uh, you know, white people get electroshock way more than people of color. Um, uh, So it's not a simple one-on-one because all of these have histories. But overall, it is true, the tendency is the more oppressed, the more infringed on by psychiatry. One, and one part for me of being a radical practitioner is to help people understand and respond to the oppression in their lives, which are causing the problem, as opposed to a so-called deficiency in them, which, which, which is not what's happening here. Absolutely. So, Nick, your work incorporates many ideas from queer studies and the LGBTQ movement. Could you share a bit about that intersection? Um, I think they're they're entwined, neurodiversity and um, and queerness. You know, the whole LGBTQI movement and um, queer studies and queer liberation. 
um, neurodiversity. I mean, they are uh, entwined inextricably for uh, multiple reasons. For one thing, uh, being queer is a form of neurodiversity. It is a form of neurodivergence. You know, if, if you're born wired a specific way um, uh, in terms of your, your gender and sexual orientation, and it's not, uh, you know, if that's if that's if that's how you function, if that's how your brain works and uh, how your body works, and it's not the uh, accepted, you know, narrow cultural gender binary, well, that is that is neurodivergence right there. But the uh, the oppression of neurodivergent people and queer people is very much intertwined. Um, gender. Uh, as you know, gender studies and queer studies emphasize so strongly is uh, performative. That we have we have this culture with these very narrowly defined gender binary roles of masculine and feminine, and they demand a constant performance. The cultural demand and the dominant culture is constant performance of gender role. You can never stray. You know that that. Uh, women, women, and their bodies and their performance of their gender are constantly policed by the patriarchy. As is masculinity, which is like forever fragile, forever seen as forever fragile and forever something that has to be proven and maintained and performed. And so, these are embodied forms of performance and neurotypicality moving and acting like members of the cognitive majority is also a performance that is constantly enforced and that is tied to the gender binary. So to perform masculinity according to, you know, the standards of the dominant patriarchy is to perform specifically neurotypical masculinity and to perform femininity is to perform specifically neurotypical femininity. Um, in that sense, neurodivergence is queerness. Autism is intrinsically, innately queer because the way our bodies work, the way we think and the way we embody ourselves as people in the world violates gender norms. When ABA and other behaviors, methods, and such are used to enforce performance of neurotypicality, uh, to force us to perform, you know, to to act like non-autistic people, they're specifically training autistic people to act like, you know, they're training boys to act like boys, to act like little men, to perform a conventional uh, patriarchal masculinity, and they're conditioning girls to act like little girls are supposed to act in a patriarchal culture. So it really is about this performance of neurotypicality can't be extricated from the performance of binary gender norms. Um, autistic people left to their own devices and not interfered with are a very queer bunch. Um, uh, increasing evidence that... Uh, Transgenderism occurs more frequently in the autistic community, you know, a uh, higher rate of transgender, just a general higher rate of queerness, of uh, asexuality and um, gender, gender queerness, non-binariness, um, all of these, all of these various manifestations of queerness just seem to show up at a higher rate 
in autistic people in general, um, uh, we're not wired for uh, binary gender norms, although arguably no one really is, and it's culturally imposed on everyone. Um, the policing of autistic bodies and the policing of queer bodies has always been entwined. ABA was originally developed for the purpose of enforcing gender norms. There were two concurrent studies. It was uh, UC Irvine, if I'm remembering right, somewhere in Southern California. Um, uh, there were uh, the behaviorists, uh, uh, Ivar Lavas, uh, the guy who's credited as the, the founder of ABA, um, and his, his uh, accomplices had two concurrent research studies going uh, one of them, uh, where they developed ABA, one of them was using ABA, using behaviorist methods, including a lot of beatings and electric shock um, uh, to, on autistic children to, uh, you know, as ABA is used now to enforce uh, performance of neurotypicality. The other study running at the same time, run by the same people in the same lab, was called the Feminine Boy Project. And it was intended to keep boys from becoming gay by using behaviorism to enforce gender norms. So they took boys whose parents were worried because the boys were engaging in feminine behaviors like playing with dolls or being nurturing or not being vicious little bullies. And they took, they took these boys and rewarded them when they engaged in aggressive behavior or played with guns and trucks and electrocuted them if they played with got played with dolls or cried or showed nurturing non-competitive behavior so uh these two programs uh ran concurrently and this was the genesis of aba funding for the feminine boy project dried up because uh homosexuality was taken out of the dsm and so ABA became focused on autistic kids, but that initial experiment uh, and the, the, the work that was done um, uh, trying to use behaviorism to prevent boys from turning gay formed the genesis of the conversion therapy that you know right wing uh, right wing religious cultists still use on um, gay people to try to turn them straight. So that. Um, there's that closely entwined uh, history. Um, and we have now uh, in the neurodiversity movement, this um, uh, the leading edge of what we're doing um, is called neuroqueering. And we have this term neuroqueer, which is an acknowledgement of the connection between, um, you know, how uh, compulsory neurotypicality and compulsory masculinity and femininity femininity and heterosexuality how these are all intertwined forms of enforced cultural performance so you know so we queering this idea of queering comes from the gender community how do we sub how do we sub you know from the from the queer community and gender studies this idea of queering how do we queer the performance how do we how do we mess with it? How do we really play out our queerness in an embodied way in the world and subvert the gender binary? And so neuroqueering is doing the same thing with neurotypicality and as an, an acknowledgement that these are not, these are not separate things. These are not separate things that we are going to uh, embody our 
our weirdness and our glorious uniqueness and really play that embodiment out and see where it takes us whenever we can. And that that is a violation of neurotypical norms and gender norms and that our, our neurodivergence and our, our innate queerness are not separate things. Yeah. Um, and both of you have done incredible work to provide education on ways we can support all people to live authentically as who they are. And I think that neuroqueering sounds like an important part of that. Um, so what do you both think are the most important ways, um, in addition, that we can maximize cognitive liberty for everyone? Uh, a crystal thing is we have to shift education. We shift the education so that we started seeing and celebrating the enormous, uh, uh, the, the, the enormous benefit that we get from people who, from people having the great variety they have and valuing difference. We go a long, long way to, to shifting, uh, you know, the kind of state we have, the kind of society we have. Uh, I also think that we need, I think we need a different kind of literacy. I think that we are not literate about how people who have different kinds of experiences see things and understand things. We have a kind of, in terms of the mad world, I call it mad literacy. And we need to become mad literate. My guess is we need to become literate in all sorts of ways so that we understand and value people who think, process, feel differently. At that point, we are in a position to be able to understand, to help, and to do all sorts of things, as long as our understanding is limited to this uh, way that we have of conventionalizing and enforcing the conventional and thinking everything else is not okay, there's no place to begin. There's no place at all to begin, because we're starting in the, we're starting in a place where instead of being the person who can be of help, we are the oppressor. Absolutely. Um, and what do you think are some ways to just start kind of providing that education um, for people involved in education and teaching who are listening to this maybe? If you're a teacher, you might start uh, talking Princeton's and, and, and helping your class understand people who, uh, who uh, literalize, who use people who use metaphoric metaphor concepts literally what that looks like and what they might mean by it so you help people to start understanding ways of speaking that they don't understand and think are nonsense now so it, there's a there's a training involved in and teachers instead of enforcing the dsm and enforcing you know medication for adhd can start talking about how the difference and how people understand things and help people understand what now they cannot, they do not understand. And so educators can start bringing this right into their classrooms. Okay, we are going to spend a day on how to, on, on, we're, we're going to devote today to, to mad literacy and we are going to devote a day to how to understand people and how to understand people in confirming ways that see things you don't see that hear things that you don't hear that have an alternate live in an alternate universe from the ones you live in. And I think we need to go back that early. I think we need to go back as early as childhood so that people are not raised to be intolerant and unappreciative of these kinds of differences. 
Definitely. And what would you say also to people who educate mental health professionals? I know there are a lot of people listening who might provide continuing education um, or classes to um, people who are on their way to becoming mental health professionals. I think they have to begin by seeing the enormous problem caused by by caused by what they're being taught, mm-hmm. and stuff. And they need they need education that starts turning all of that on its head. You know, the answer is not that they should be better able to use the DSM. The answer is they should stop using the DSM, mm-hmm. right? And so we need an education that throws out, problematizes what exists now, what they're being taught now. And bit by bit, walks them step by step into a different world of how to look at things. Absolutely. Um, And Nick, do you have ideas for ways we can maximize cognitive liberty for everyone? Uh, It does start with education. I mean, um, ultimately, there will need to be, you know, civil rights protections uh, for people and uh, just sort of a, you know, a, a mass refusal to enable this sort of oppression, you know, it's, uh, um, and it's something that every civil rights movement is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a work in progress, you know, that there are increasingly large sectors of society where racism is not acceptable, but there's still massive racism, you know, there's, uh, you know, uh, sexism, homophobia, you know, it's still widespread. There's still cultural struggles and polarization uh, going on because the old racist, sexist, homophobic paradigms are holding on as long and as hard as they can as the shift happens. We need to create that sort of shift, and that does take time, and it does start with that education that normalizes difference, that uh, uh, normalizes the idea that there is no normal. So, yeah, educating, I mean, there is, you know, Thomas Kuhn, who really uh, developed the concept of the paradigm, said paradigm shifts don't generally happen by a lot of people being uh, convinced and changing their mind, the old guard, the people who built their co- academic careers and such around pushing the old paradigm, don't usually convert. They die and get replaced by new generations that were raised much more comfortable with a new paradigm. And so that education from early on is indeed a key. This is why we do autonomous press. You know, I have this publishing company. Um, I'm co-owner and managing editor of this publishing company, Autonomous Press. Uh, It's run entirely by neurodivergent people. We are dedicated to publishing uncensored, queer, mad, neurodivergent literature because more of it needs to be there, you know, Bonnie is absolutely right. It has, the education has to happen. People have to have this literacy. And in order to do that, they have to have stuff to read. If we we expect people to uh, educate and create this literacy around madness and neurodivergence and cognitive liberty, the literature has to exist. And so my focus right now is on helping to publish and produce the literature itself and um, 
we're seeing great uh, autistic memoir and autoethnography and mad memoir and you know um, we're producing more and more of that and also looking at neurodivergent and mad lives from from neurodivergent and mad perspectives we're also producing you know a neurodivergent literature in the sense of poetry and fiction you know we've got a whole a whole genre of neuroqueer science fiction that is starting to emerge a lot of what autonomous press is going to be publishing is science fiction and other literature like that we have this annual spoon knife literary anthology that's a mixture of short fiction and memoir and poetry i want we, we need to see more um uh more books for young people too because as bonnie pointed out educate young so good portrayals of mad and neurodivergent perspectives expose you know for for the young to take the stigma and fear uh, away from it at very young very young ages less stuff with autistic there's so many books with autistic characters that are done poorly and written by non-autistic people we need more stuff Autistic characters written by autistic authors and mad characters written by mad authors, people writing and sharing their perspective in fiction, including young adult fiction and children's fiction. My daughter, who's not autistic, you know, just from growing up around me, and I mean, she's 10 right now, and she's from growing up around with me as a dad and uh, being interested in my work and what's this book on the bookshelf and what are you writing now, daddy? Um, she understands the neurodiversity paradigm really well. She, and she, much to my surprise, without me trying to make it happen, um, she recognizes people as autistic all the time. She will start reading a book and be able to tell me within a few pages from the way language is used that the, whether, that the author is autistic. So that literacy can really happen and it really can happen at a young age. Absolutely. Um, and for the final topic, I wanted to discuss how one aspect of fighting for cognitive liberty is advocating for ways to support people in emotional distress without restricting their freedom or violating their autonomy. And I mm -hmm. think this is especially relevant um, right now at the time of this recording. It's Suicide Prevention Month. Um, so what advice do you have for providers, peers, family members, and community members who share this goal um, and that might be contrary to what we've been hearing, some of the more traditional messages we've been hearing this month. So, uh, even the concept of suicide prevention is a misconcept. We're not trying to prevent people from doing things. We're trying to help them find ways to be. And so if we get out of, I mean, the whole concept of preventing suicide is outrageous. Uh, I would you, you know, I, I have, uh, I have, uh, at various times specialized in working with people who would be seen as suicidal. And I have never once told them they can't do it. I've never once told them that I'm going to call in the shrinks if they do it or call an ambulance. I've never tried to stop someone, and I have not lost a single client. Wow. So what in the world are they doing? Suicide prevention causes suicide. Let's be clear. We start respecting that people are coping the best way we, they can, and our job is not robbing people of their coping skills or telling what they should want, but insofar as they're opening them, open to it, helping them enhance those skills, giving them alternatives, not, not trying to control the situation. 
And if we revert to that mindset, we will not have anywhere near as many people killing themselves because we're going to be a safe person to go to. We make ourselves, professionals make themselves into unsafe people to go to. And what professionals have taught the world to do is to lose every sense of what they know on how to help people and turn them and turn family members into unsafe people to go to. What we need to do is reverse that whole process. We also need to have supports built into our community. So if you live in a condominium, you, you can better be sure that, it, uh, you know, that on many nights there will be people frightened in that condominium, people feeling like they can't handle things in the condominium, and there's nothing further to go except call emergency. Mm -hmm. We need to actually befriend people and learn how to befriend people again. We need to have people, for instance, in every condominium, not, not through the work of professionals, but through the work of the community in that condominium, figure out, okay, we are going to decide who's on call if someone's upset tonight. You know, so for the next week, you'll be on call. After that, I'll be on call. So there are people to turn to. And then people need some very basic level training on how to unlearn what they've learned. Because we do know how to be of help. We've been trained not to know. Definitely. And I know you've done work, too, um, specifically with radical feminist therapy. So could you talk a little bit about that as well? Well, uh, in, in Radical Feminist Therapy, that was a book I, I authored a long time ago. And I authored it partly because I needed feminism brought into this concept, brought into the understanding of, of why women are in difficulty and what happens to women. But partly because nowhere in the literature at the time did anyone say how do you take uh, the concepts of feminism and turn it into some ideas of what that should be in practice of what would you would do if you were a feminist therapist. Mm -hmm. And so after I did that, then I started to be invited by uh, battered women's shelters and all sorts of other places to come and talk to them about how to improve their services in a, by, by, by looking in ways that listen to women, help women, validate women, and don't invalidate women. So, so uh, you know, if we went back far enough, also there's some women's knowledge here. If we went back far enough before the doctors came in, uh, before, before uh, women who were wise women were locked up in psychiatric institutions, first having been burnt, then locked up in psychiatric institutions when, when it went from the church to psychiatry to who had the paradigm of what was wrong that was supposed to be believed. We go back before then, people in trouble were tended to by wise women who talked to them, who listened to them, who gave them herbs, who let them stay at their place, etc. We need to go back to that kind of way of knowing and that kind of knowledge. We need to get out of, we're, we're operating still in the patriarchal world. When we're on the professions, even the, the professions that women are in and the helping professions are largely built on a patriarchal paradigm. We need to get back to a woman's paradigm. So, so uh, and, uh, and, and when I say a woman's paradigm, largely what's been called women, women's paradigm, is what is, what is true of most people on various levels. And, and the, rest, the rest is... Is, is, is a super, super imposition invented by a patriarchy. So we need to get back to those things. But, you know, in radical feminist therapy, I was trying to train women practitioners to, to be able 
to deal to be able to be of help to people who live in alternate realities in a way that helps them to explore, that helps them, and that doesn't say here is an answer. The second we say well, here is an answer, we are we are back into the world of conformity. Mm-hmm. People are different, and what will help one person will not help another. And so we need we need people with the openness to be able to try to figure out what it is the person they're facing them right now need, as opposed to a prescription. The second you have a prescription, whether it's cognitive therapy or whatever, it's no good. It's no good. And so to go back into a different way of being with people so that we can respond to people in terms of what they need and what they think they need, this becomes really important. Is that people are pathologizing, they certainly are, for not for not living up to the gender norm, from de- from deviating from the gender norm. But women are also pathologized for meeting the gender norm. So if if women do not meet the gender norm and they're and they're not what what the what is expected of women, then they're given one diagnosis. If they meet the norm, then they're given a different diagnosis, <laughs> right? So, yes. so diagnosis hysterical was was almost. Almost, almost completely synonymous with what people's expectations of what a woman was supposed to be, and so they were called hysterical and histrionic personality disorder. We need to look at the fact that it's even worse than people, that women are pathologized from deviating from it. They're also pathologized from matching the norm. Looking at that and incorporating that into our into into our health becomes really important. Definitely. Um... And Nick, um, do you have ideas for what um, providers, peers, and family members can do um, to support people in a way that doesn't restrict their freedom or violate their autonomy? I think one thing that's, uh, again, pathologizing people is not helpful. For one thing, we live in a distressing world. Uh, we live in a world full of oppression and needlessly imposed suffering. You know, life is suffering is the first noble truth of Buddhism. You know, this is, to some extent, suffering and pain and distress are unavoidable and a part of human growth and development. You know, grief happens and bad things happen. And we live in this uh, oppressive society, you know, rife with patriarchy and sexism and misogyny and racism and bigotry and abuse and damaged people damaging other people and tyranny. It's uh, it's an ugly world uh, right now and industrial capitalism is not not human-friendly. Um, so people have good reason to be in distress about the world. Um, and it's not because they're ill. It's not a disease to, uh, uh, to feel distress over legitimately distressing things. And that's okay. That's part of existence. And when we pathologize that, that's not in any way helpful. You know, if a person's already in psychological distress to be told, oh, it's because you're, you have a chronic mental illness and will have to be on this uh, freedom-restricting regimen of treatments for the rest of your life, that's, how does that want someone, make someone less distressed or make them more joyfully embrace life? So I think one thing we can do, again, is drop this whole 
mental disorder, mental illness garbage, um, you know, that's just a psychiatry marketing scam, and call psychological distress psychological distress. It's okay to be in psychological distress. Distress is not chronic mental disease. It's just just distress. And so, yeah, normalizing that. Yeah, you're in in distress. You're bumming. And, yeah, we're here to see you through it because, yeah, life can be tough. Yeah, so that's that's one um, that's one important thing I think we can do. And the other is a big a symptom, a big a big symptom of uh, or cornerstone of modern patriarchy is and um, is the mind body split that alienates people from their own embodiment. Mm-hmm. And healing that is really important. Uh, for helping people to, I think if people are alienated from their own embodied experience of being a part of the world, a part of what uh, the poet Rilke called the greater circulation, that's just very alienating and alienation from one's own body and one's own natural impulse toward embodiment and embodied expression of self um, alienates a person from everything else as well. And that isolation is distressing so healing that is important and having this body-to-body contact of people, people who touch and hug and, and feel themselves grounded in the, in the world. Um, because I think, that, I think that predatory industries of, of treatment and therapy thrive on a society, a culture of people who feel lost Mm -hmm. and that lostness, the remedy to that lostness is a return to our own fully embodied experience. Definitely. Well, thank you both so much for joining us for Madden America's podcast. I am so honored to have had the chance to speak with you and learn from you both. And thank you for all the work you do to protect the civil liberties of all people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. And thank you, Bonnie. It was wonderful to get to talk with you. Yeah, it was nice to be on with you, Nick. Well, I just wanted to take a moment to thank Emily, Bonnie and Nick for such an interesting discussion. Our Force Treatment series is ongoing, and if you have perspectives that you would like covered or individuals that you'd like to hear from, please feel free to email us with suggestions using the email address podcasts at maddenamerica.com. Madden America News and Updates. We wanted to let you know that Madden America Continuing Education is presenting a series of seven webinars on psychiatric drug withdrawal that will feature presentations by people with lived experience, psychiatrists, and other professionals. The course begins on October 24th, and there is a 50% discount for the first 75 people who sign up for the course. To get more details and to sign up, visit maddenamerica.com and use the link at the top right-hand side of the homepage. So thank you for listening in. Please come back next week for another episode. And until then, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.